If you don't know me, my name's Paul. I'm Deb's brother, Sam's brother-in-law, and uh, they used to be my landlords as well for seven and a half years. Um, where shall I start? First of all, I've got a photo for you. Um, those of you that know, Deb and I grew up in Brazil, and um, have you got the clicker, Deb? Oh, yeah. This is just a couple of selfies from people in the church in Trapia. Those of you that have been praying for them, thank you for praying. The church is in a good and healthy place. It's growing. People are coming to Jesus. Um, this is just a bunch of people from Trapia that went to the state capital um, to see the inauguration of the pastor of a church that they're partnering with. And it's just really good. Like Some of the people at the table grew up in mud and stick houses, and some of the other people are really quite wealthy. And it's just the way Jesus brings people together from all kinds of backgrounds. Uh, and they send their greetings to you guys, and they pray for us as a church. And um, if you can, please do remember them in your prayers. Um, you're going to be sick and tired. If you've been coming for a while, you'll be sick and tired of hearing me say this, but I'll say it for those that haven't heard it. Whenever I speak, I work through a book of the Bible, and I've been going through Genesis chapter by chapter. Um, and we've come to the story of Abraham, who goes on to become Abraham. And uh, the last time I spoke was Genesis chapter 12. And in that, if you click to the next one, God's given Abraham some promises. I'll make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And then the next one, Deb. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring, I'll give this land. In other words, God's promised to Abraham. At this point, he's got no kids, and he's promised him land, and he's promised him a lot of descendants. So that's chapter 12. But then things don't quite go right in chapter 12, and there's a famine, and Abraham ends up in Egypt, and he gets his wife taken off him, and he finds himself alone without his wife, not in the land where he's meant to be, and then at the end of chapter 12, God kind of brings it together and, and he's heading out of Egypt. Abraham gets booted out of Egypt by the king of Egypt. And we come to Genesis chapter 13. Now, normally when I speak, I get somebody to read the chapter for me. You guys that come regularly will be familiar with that. And recently there have been some chapters with quite difficult names. And consistently, the last few times I've spoken, people have come up to me and said, Oh, Paul, you really threw them under the bus with that reading. That was really harsh of you getting them to read that. Often it's my wife, Felicity. Um, she does a good job, to be fair. Yeah, people read them really well, but people are like, oh, Paul, you're really cruel getting them to read those really hard passages. So what I thought I'd do today is I'd put myself uh, in the hot seat. And uh, the reason Deb and Sam are up, and we've got some chocolates, is we're going to do a repeat of what happened this morning. I'm going to try it. So Genesis, before it was written in the Hebrew... Um, would have been passed on orally. People would have told the story. Uh, so what I'm going to try and do tonight is I'm going to try and tell the story of Genesis chapter 13. Uh, and the verses are going to be up behind me on the screen, but I'm not going to be able to see them. I think Deb's going to turn that monitor off. There you go. And slide by slide, I'm going to try and tell the story. And I was fairly pleased with how I got on this morning. And, basically, and to be fair, he had kids testing him, and they were harsh. They One were of them really was harsh. our son. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. So every, every mistake I made, I had to give the kids chocolates, so I was determined not to give them too many chocolates. So were these for me and Sam? Yeah. Um, so basically, Deb and Sam are examining me, and if you guys spot anything that Deb and Sam haven't spotted, you can I'll shout your out chocolate. as well. I'm not trying to tell it word for word, verbatim. I'm um, just trying to tell the gist of the story, but if I miss a detail, you can, you can get me. Okay, here we go. Is it up? Is yep. it? Okay, so this is Genesis chapter 13, and it's Abram and Lot separate. And it starts like this. Abram went up from Egypt uh, towards the Negev. The Negev is a desert. 
And he went with his wife and all that he had and Lot, and Lot was his nephew. And Abraham had become very wealthy in gold and silver and livestock. Yep, great. Is that all the detail? Yep. Okay, next one. Uh, and so he went on from the Negev, and he came to Bethel, um, and he went to the place between Bethel and I where he'd pitched his tent before and made an altar to the Lord. Uh, and while he was there, he called on the name of the Lord. He went from place to place before he got okay, to enough. Bethel. Can have it. He also... It was the first, where he first built an altar. Don't know whether that's important. Sorry. Oh, very sympathetic, the congregation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there you thanks, go. Man. I didn't do anything there. Okay. Right, next one. Come on. What's the picture of that's up on the screen now? Uh, it's two goats. <laughs> okay, right. Is that right? Yeah, the passage is up. Okay, so Lot, Abraham's nephew, who was with him, had also become very wealthy in flocks and herds and tents, um, and they had so much stuff, so many possessions that they couldn't live together because they had so many livestock and stuff that all the goats and things were eating and there wasn't enough space. And so there was uh, arguments arose between the herdsmen of Abram and the herdsmen of Lot. And so they're rowing. and the Canaanites and the Perizzites were in the land at that time. Yep. Come on. Anyone want to? Oh. Uh, okay, next one. It's got a long way to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, because they're, so the herdsmen are rowing, and Abram says to Lot, look, let's not have arguments between you and me and your herdsmen and my herdsmen, because we're close relatives. So here's what we're going to do. Look around you at the land, And you can basically have any bit of the land that you want. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. But let's not have any of this rowing between you and me. Yeah. Yeah? Good. Yeah, it's good. Next one. Okay, so Lot looked up, and he saw that the plains of the Jordan, the land of Zoar, uh, was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. And he thought, that's a nice piece of land, I'll have that. Uh, No, that's not in there. Um, (laughs) And he thought, basically, essentially, as he said, I'll I'll have that bit. And so he, Abram, hang on, no, this was before, open brackets, this was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, close brackets. Um, Hang on, don't don't say anything. This is before... I feel a chocolate coming on. (laughs) This was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So, Abram lived in the land of Canaan, and Lot went and lived in the cities of the plain near to Sodom. And the people of Sodom were very wicked, and they were sinning greatly against the Lord. Yeah. There's a bit you missed out, but you covered it in theory. I've I've got... The whole plain of the Jordan. That's harsh, but yeah. That was the whole bit of, oh, that looks nice. I'll have that. I think was how it was paraphrased. Yeah. <laughs> the kids this morning picked him up on the fact that he said, Lot, oh, he went looked, 
No, that Lot looked around and you said Lot looked up. That's how yeah. harsh the kids were this morning. <laughs> it's because in the ESV it says he looked up, I think. Okay, next one. So Lot's gone off to his land uh, to live near Sodom. And then the Lord spoke to Abraham and said, uh, look around you at this land. Look to the north and the south and the east and the west. All of this is gonna, I'm going to give to you and to your descendants forever. And I'm going to make your descendants like the dust of the earth. You're going to have so many descendants, they're going to be like the dust of the earth. And if anyone could count the dust of the earth, they'll be able to count your descendants. And now what I want you to do, Abraham, is I want you to get up and walk through the land because all of this is going to belong to you. Yeah. Yeah? Come on. <laughs> We're nearly there. And so Abraham went up to the great trees at Mamre uh, in the land of Hebron, and he pitched his tent there, and there he called on the name of the Lord. Or built an altar to the Lord. Built an altar yeah. to the Lord. Ah, uh, that's not I mean. good enough. I'm sorry. <laughs> built an it's altar. It's all right. I forgive you. <laughs> there we go. I don't know what your week's been like. I've had one of those weeks where there's just a lot going on inside my head, um, which makes a change. Hey, um, <laughs> no, there's been a lot going on in my head. I, like the, the news of, the, of Michael, Dan, and Paul leaving, I heard that last week. Um, and that was quite a thing to me. They're, I consider all of them friends, very grateful, lots of grateful memories for the things that they've done among us as a community, but also a sadness, a sadness that a new phase of life starting. Um, and then the news about Esther uh, and talking with Sam and Laura, that's been on my mind a lot as well. And then the wars that just keep raging on in, in Palestine, in the Ukraine, around the world. Um, and then my younger sister, Julia, and her husband, Tom, a lot of you know them, they, they're trying to move house at the moment and all the joy of that. Uh, <laughs> a few tears on the phone. Um, and then Felicity and, I, Felicity and I are coming up to six months married. We got married in September. And it's things like we haven't got around to sending out thank you cards yet. Um, I'll, tell, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you a really bad joke that I told this week. Uh, that, um, and it was a great victory for me because Felicity laughed off guard. I was like, get in. So we were talking about, um, we were talking about uh, the thank you cards. And Felicity was saying, well, you've got friends overseas uh, who we need to send cards to, so we need to, we're going to need to find some addresses. And I said, you'll be a bit cold in them in January, won't you? Need to find some addresses. Uh, hey, thank you, that's the correct response. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and on top of all that, I've been, been thinking, been, uh, whenever I speak on a chapter, I've been thinking about um, Genesis chapter 13, and, and what does it have to say to us today? How should we live as a community as a result of the stuff that's in this chapter? How should we relate to each other and to the world around us as a result of what's in Genesis chapter 13? So I've called this talk, Riches, Relatives, and Real Estate, and it's five things, don't worry, they're not going to be long things, five things we can learn from Genesis chapter 13 about our relationships. And each one of those five things will come with a question or two uh, to think about as we, as we look at this chapter. What does it mean for us? And I'll just give a little pause after each one of those questions just to have a think on it. Um, before we go into them, let's just, let's just pray. 
Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're present here by your Holy Spirit, and we thank you for your word that speaks, has spoken through the centuries. We pray, Lord, that gives life. Would you come and speak through your word, the Bible, today? Would you help us, Lord, to hear you and obey you and do the things you'd have us do? Would you help us, Jesus, to see you through your word? Amen. So, first thing. The first two, actually, were just verses in that chapter that grabbed my attention. You know, when you're reading something and just something pops out to you. So the first two were just verses that stood out to me. And this was the first one that caught my eye. It was verse 6, the end of verse 6. It says, For their possessions, talking about Abraham and Lot, their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And in their situation, it meant they had so many sheep and goats. I don't know if you've ever been familiar with farming, but if you, if you let a load of sheep or goats out on a piece of land and there's grass, they'll mow that piece of land short, and the grass will just disappear very quickly. And so the idea is, uh, Abraham and Lot at this time, they're nomadic. They were, nomad- they were traveling with, the, with these flocks. And wherever they were, all of these flocks would be constantly eating. Sheep and goats just carry on eating. And so access to things like fresh grass and water would become scarcer and scarcer. And that's why arguments started to happen between the different herdsmen. It's like, well, this is our patch. Clear off. Um, And that kind of thing. But that verse, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to live together. It just stuck with me. And it, it made me ask the question, how do our riches affect our relationships. And what I'm going to say now is nothing new. This isn't going to be news to anybody. It's stuff that we all know deep down. Uh, but it just caught my attention. Have a think about this. I've, over the last few years, been looking at housing a lot. I don't know if you've been on things like Right Move. Um, and this isn't a judgment. It's just an observation, something that struck me about housing. If you're looking on a housing website, um, you can order it in order of value of the property. And as you move through it, there's kind of a a hierarchy of properties. Let's imagine you're in one place. Obviously, if you move around, the prices change. But imagine you're in, let's say, in in Sutton. You kind of, if you start off at one end, you start off with like your flat, your one-bed flat. And then as you're able to spend more, you might be able to get a two-bed flat. And and then from a two-bed flat, you might be able to get into a terraced house. Maybe you have a freehold property, a terraced house. And then from a terraced house, you might be able to upgrade to a semi-detached. And if semi-detached, you might be able to then move on to a detached or a castle or whatever else you, you might have. What are you on about, Paul? What are you talking about? And the more money you can spend often means the more bedrooms you can have. So what am I talking about? It struck me that the more you're able to spend on a property, the more walls you're able to put between you and other people. So if you're in a flat, you've probably got people above you, people below you people to the sides, and they're all around. And inside, you've probably not got much space for you and and the people that God has blessed you with in your life, (laughs) and their noises and smells. If you move into a terraced house, you've then got walls. You've got no one above you and no one below you, but you've just got neighbors to the side. Semi-detached, you share one wall, but you've got two walls between you and the next neighbor. In a detached house, you've got nobody sharing your walls. And in a detached house with lots of rooms, you can even put walls between you and the the people and their noises and smells that are in your life. Does that make sense? And so the more you're able to spend on a property, the more walls you're able to put between you and other people. And it struck me, I had this thought, what if Jesus was calling us as a community to live a more open plan life? 
I remember I, I worked in India for a time, and I worked with colleagues whose families, families of five, six people, and they'd all live in a single room, and the room would be the bedroom, the kitchen, the lounge, everybody in just one room. And it's not what we would call comfortable, but I wonder what that does to relationships. And we all know this deep down. We live in one of the most comfortable, wealthy places on earth, but loneliness is through the roof. Through the roof. Hey. Real estate jokes. And so what does that mean for our community? And I think Jesus has some quite radical things to say about what we do with our wealth. And here's one of the things he says. He says, here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you into an eternal home. So for me, in my life, a couple of questions. Are my riches ever a barrier to good relationships with God and the people around me? And then secondly, how can I use my riches this week to build good relationships. I'm just going to pause there a moment. I'm going to grab my water bottle. So, that was how riches affect our relationships. Moving on to the second verse that caught my eye. Um, and this second verse... If you were just reading Genesis 13 by itself, you would assume it was just a passing comment. You might even pass over it without particularly noticing it. But if you know the story of Genesis, and the people that were hearing this would know that this verse is a pointer towards something quite big that's going to happen later in the story. Um, it's actually kind of like a little pre-warning to something that's coming. And it's verse 13. It says this, Now the people of Sodom were wicked and was sinning greatly against the Lord. And that verse stuck out to me, and I, I looked at myself, why does that verse stuck out to me? It stuck out to me because it made me feel uncomfortable. And I think if something in the Bible makes you feel uncomfortable, it's worth paying attention to why that is, because there's something in your heart that's troubled by what's in the Bible. Why was that verse prodding me? Last week in the, in the morning service, Donald did his mentee, and there was kind of a responsive prayer on mentee. And this one says, sorry if you mind me taking a photo, uh, don't judge me. Um, Lord, I'm not as you would want, particularly I'm sorry for, and I'm always interested on those little things. I don't know if you've seen mentee, I'm always interested in what comes out on top. And the thing that came out on top was, I'm sorry for my judging. And I think... One of the things that our society really dislikes are people who are judgmental. Even though we can be incredibly judgmental on the internet, being judgmental as a quality is something our society is very strongly against. And in a way, that's good because Jesus tells us very clearly we're not to judge. And being judgmental has become like the, almost like the ultimate crime. But when we see a verse like this, verse 13... I wonder, do we allow the Bible, do we allow God's word to make judgments on us and on our lives? Who gets to say, this is an important question, who gets to say in my life what is wicked and what isn't? Is it me that gets to say it? Is it society? Does each person get to decide for themselves what's right and wrong? So the second thing is, what's our relationship 
with right and wrong. And this isn't about judging people. Jesus said we're not to judge others. He said this, How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So Jesus says very clearly we're not to judge our brother, but who gets to say in my life if I have a plank in my eye? Who has the authority to say, Paul, you've got a plank in your eye that you need to remove? I think this is about us allowing God's word to say what's right and wrong. And God's word being the standard that we live by. Does the Bible get to say to me, Paul, you've got a plank in your eye? I wasn't going to throw this in, but I think it's an important thing. I I was really concerned by something I read. I'm very interested in history, and I was listening to a piece of history, and it was about the theologian Karl Barth. And and just a quick overview, I wasn't going to go into this deeply, but Karl Barth got into an argument in his time, in his place, with people who felt that you could decide what God was and who God was what God was like by looking at nature, by, through your feelings. Um, basically, you could find God any way you wanted, and you could interpret God the way you wanted to. And what that meant was that people's ideas of what the Bible says, what, what's right and wrong, could become very flexible. And you think, well, what's wrong with that? Surely that makes for a very flexible, easygoing society, doesn't it? Well, actually, Karl Barth was having those arguments just before, well, it would have been the 1930s, um, just before Hitler came to power in Germany. And actually, I think what happens when, when we become flexible with how we decide what's right and what's wrong, what happens is we don't become a tolerant society, we open doors to evil. And actually, it's very important that we allow God's word to speak and say what is right and what is wrong. And so a couple of questions for us, not looking at other people, but in my life, do I allow the Bible to tell me what's right and wrong? And then secondly, am I ever tempted to dismiss what the Bible says? So, we've had how our riches affect relationships and that was a relationship with right and wrong. And now the third thing, looking, looking to the story, if you think about the dynamic between Abraham and Lot, Abraham's the older man, he's Lot's uncle, um, and he's, also, he's clearly kind of the head of that family unit. And so Abraham had every right, so Lot's herdsmen are causing trouble, Abraham had every right to say to Lot, look Lot, your people are causing trouble, you need to go find somewhere else to live. On top of that, God had promised Abraham the land. He promised the land to Abraham and his descendants. So the land belonged to Abraham by promise. And so Abraham had the right over the land as the more senior person, but also through the promise. But what does he do? He puts a good relationship with his nephew ahead of claiming what's his by right. He puts the other man first. And so the third thing I think we learn from this passage is choosing relationship over our rights. And so think about this. We 
as the church, as God's people, we have incredible promises for our future. We've got promises for a life without suffering, a life with joy, a life where we don't wake up to terrible news. We've got great promises for our future. And so what impact does that have? What does that security, how does that security impact the way we live now? When people in our lives, maybe even relatives, wind us up, when our rights are threatened, when things don't go our way, how does having those promises impact the way we deal with troubles in this life now? And I think Jesus shows us a new and an upside-down way. He said, so the last will be first, and the first will be last. Things are going to be turned on their heads. There's a new order coming. And I wonder if, like Abraham, are we able to put other people ahead of us, despite what our rights are, And so for me, in my life, what could I sacrifice that's rightfully mine for the sake of good relationships with God and people? So, we've had how riches affect relationships, we've had our relationship with right and wrong, and we've had choosing relationships over our rights. And now the fourth thing. So, if you imagine yourself as Abraham, he's been promised by God that he's going to have lots of descendants and that the land's going to belong to them. But at this point in the story, we know Abraham had no children and he didn't own any land at all. And now Lot's gone and taken the best-looking bit of land. So Abraham's left in this situation. No kids, no land. Lot's taken the best bit of land. What about the promises, God? And I was thinking a lot about this in relation to the chapter before, chapter 12, where Abraham found himself in a foreign land in Egypt without his wife, and God somehow brought things back together. And I wonder if Abraham was learning that God will do things his way in his own time. And sometimes that looks slow. So the fourth thing is Abraham's learning to resist rushing to results. I I don't know what life's like for you now, but especially in the last few months, I found that a lot of my life, a lot of my weeks, feel like they're spent rushing from thing to thing. I don't know if you experience that, rushing from one thing to another. And in myself and and in the people around me, I just think we're we're used to having things done now, having things done quickly. Like I, I don't know what you're like with your mobile phone, but for me, WhatsApp becomes this thing where I'm slightly OCD, so I don't like the idea of having unread messages. And there's constantly, it's like, you know that feeling when you get added to another group chat? And you know that there's going to be more messages and more messages. And I feel slightly panicked. And it's just thing after thing. And people want things done now. Corrie Ten Boom said this. She said, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. And if you think about it, sin and busyness have the same effect on you and me. They cut us off from other people and they cut us off from God. Because we're so wrapped up in them. And Abraham, he was promised that land to him and his descendants, but that land wouldn't belong to his descendants for another 400 years. Can you imagine being told that, oh, uh, 
Chris, you're going to receive this property. It's a nice detached house in a nice part of Four Oaks. It's all yours. It's going to belong to you and your family forever. Um, but in the small print, by the way, the property will only become yours to move into in 400 years' time. Great, thanks. That's wonderful. <laughs> but Abraham, even though he has this promise, he's open-handed with Lot, and he doesn't try to take a shortcut to the thing God's promised to him. He doesn't demand the land there and then. He's learning to wait. And if you think about it, think about King David. King David was promised that he was going to be king of Israel. And he was being hunted down by King Saul, who was the king at the time. And he had that opportunity, didn't he, where he was hiding in a cave. And Saul comes in by himself to relieve himself. And David could have killed him there and then and taken the kingdom for himself. But he doesn't. He doesn't take a shortcut to what God's promised him. And the same with Jesus. Jesus, when he's tempted by the devil, Jesus knows that all nations are going to belong to him. And the devil says, if you bow down to me, I'll give you all these nations right now. But Jesus doesn't take that shortcut. They all waited patiently for things to be done God's way in God's time. And it's the same for us, the church. For 2,000 years, us as Christians, we've been waiting for Jesus to come any day. For 2,000 years, we've been waiting. And then closer to home here, lots of mission partners, so people this church supports in other countries or here in the UK, who have gone years and years and years waiting before seeing anything of note happening. It's hard. Like for my mom and dad, it was hard years of having people support you and pray for you and not have a great deal to report back. God does things in his time in his way. From Donald's mentee again the other day, there was this slide, and it said, Lord, help me to be more. And the number one thing, I don't know if you can read it, the number one thing is, Lord, help me to be more patient. So what does that mean for us? I confess to you, I'm a bit of a hypocrite. Today, I preached this sermon this morning, and there were two things this afternoon and into this evening that made me feel like I just want this to be sorted right now. I'll tell you one of them. One of them was we, we left home a bit late, and Felicity had to be here for the music practice. And it seemed like every single light between Six Ways in Erdington and Sutton Coldfield Baptist Church, everyone was crossing the road. Everyone was crossing the road. Every crossing was red. There were crossings that have never been read that were red. And I thought, I preached this morning about not rushing and about doing things in God's time. And it was almost like God was having a laugh with us. Was it, was it seven red lights? Eight? There's not, there's not even that many red lights. Which, I mean, there's a few, but... And I felt that frustration rising, and it felt like God was saying, okay, so you big guy, you can preach about not rushing. How do you feel now when you're running late and the light's red? And I felt that... Right, can, you, can, you, can you feel that feeling, that frustration? And I think we can all think of ways where rushing damages our relationships with God and with people. Um, but if we think about it more constructively, more helpful questions, in my life, how can I practice rushing less this week? Jesus didn't rush. You never see Jesus rushing in the Gospels. He was always interruptible. He's on his way somewhere, and something interrupts him. He's interruptible. And secondly, how can I practice patience when I don't get the results I expected straight away?
Moving on to the last one now. So, Abram's left. He's got no kids. He owns no land. Now his nephew Lot's left him as well with all his wealth and his people. And Abram's wandering as a nomad. And if you read Genesis, God at this point hasn't said anything to Abram since before he was in Egypt. It's been a long time. And Abram's just wandering around through the land. He's not heard from God since before he was in Egypt. And it's then that God speaks to him in verse 14. And God comes and he reassures, reaffirms the promise. You're going to have all these descendants. The land is going to belong to you. God reassures him that things are on track. The relationship gets reassured. I felt it was important today. Maybe you're discouraged. Maybe you feel like you haven't heard God speak into your life specifically for a long time. Maybe you don't know where your life's heading right now. Maybe it's not looking right now how you expected it to look at this phase of your life. And going on from that last point, God does things in his way, in his time. And maybe tonight you need to hear that we have a God who does speak to us and who does guide us and who does love us. Maybe what you need to hear this evening are these words from Philippians chapter 1. It says this, I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So what does that mean for us in my life? Who needs reassurance that Jesus is still with them, no matter how things look today? And how can we encourage them? So just as a recap, Riches, relatives, and real estates from Genesis 13. How our riches affect our relationships, our relationship with right and wrong, choosing relationship over our rights, resist rushing to results, and then that we have a God who comes and reassures that relationship. And just to finish, I think what we do, what churches have been doing from the very beginning, and we look to Jesus And um, I'm just going to use some verses again from Philippians. And I think these verses from the New Testament match what we can learn from Genesis 13 in a very real way. So this is from Philippians chapter 2. It says this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father.